Don't you feel just the slightest bit silly? <laughs> oh, my, you know, we're down here at the limelight where life is lived to the fullest. Where somehow the ketchup is sweeter. The hamburgers are more rubbery. And where the women begin to feel that deep-seated flow of life flowing down deep in your innards and your vitals and the men are nervous it's right here where that tension exists and tonight since it is the beginning of spring and we're all here in the kind of basic spring training we're all preparing for the new season out there in the darkness way out there in Indiana over there in Jersey, outside of Trenton. You see that big, vast country out there? Isn't it scary? Do you realize we're right on the edge of it here, friends? We're right on the edge of the carpet. If you can imagine America as a great big chunk of corrugated steel, just a big thing there, you know, great big pie plate. We're hanging on the very edge of it, looking out to sea. We are on the island of Manhattan. Yes. And all the rest of the country is clinging to it. For dear life. <laughs> Just hanging on, you know. Here we are. We're the big one. This is New York. Standing tall. Striding like some big, mindless fathead. With its world's fair. Oh, boy. Only New York could produce a World's Fair like we just had. <laughs> Talking about mindless fatheads. You ever been out there? <laughs> you ever get the sense when you walk over that bridge, it's, there's a little buzzing starts in your ears, and that Muzak plays 5 dBs above ground swell, and you hear it. You know, somehow you're in this gigantic, vast atom bomb of total mediocrity. <laughs> A kind of dynamic, friendly mediocrity. Already, people are getting their legs in shape for standing in line in front of the Ford Pavilion. Can you imagine standing two hours in line to look at the back end of a Ford? The same Ford whose back end you smashed in yesterday in the parking lot, you know? But this is New York, I'll tell you, and it's a yard square. The New York Times stands there looks out over the whole world and it says all the news that's fit to print how's that for a dynamic how's that for a, a fantastically arrogant a, a magnificent slogan and it could only come out of New York poor little Chicago it's got a newspaper that gets mad about this you know that, that out there in... in it, oh, I wonder whether or not New Yorkers know they're in a fight continually. That all over this country out there, there are little towns and big towns, little cities and big cities, all of whom feel they're competing with New York. And New York doesn't even know there's a fight going on. <laughs> it just stands there and looks out to sea and scratches, <laughs> spits, and merely says, New York, the Empire State. 
Do you realize, can you imagine if Indiana called itself the Empire State? What a joke that'd be. We'd laugh at it, the Empire. Only New York could say, poor little Jersey tries to make a, make a little comeback. It says, we're the Garden State. We got gardens over here. New York's got an empire. <laughs> Oh, man, you know, I, I'd love to see... Wouldn't you love to see truthful slogans on license plates? <laughs> the junkyard state! You know? <laughs> I know which state would have that one, don't you, friends? Or, or, or the smelly state. Well, now, now I, I'll tell you... The reason I brought that up is because I grew up in a smelly state. No, seriously. Uh, those of you who live in the East don't recognize that some people live out their entire lives in the middle of a kind of moiling fruitcake of decadence, smell, and noise. Just a gigantic cacophony of 20th century life. In fact, I can remember in my home... Back, back in Indiana, I lived in the industrial part of Indiana, by the way, where you'd open the front door and you would hear the fresh air falling in. <laughs> Made a kind of clumping sound. <laughs> <laughs> My mother used to freeze it. <laughs> We'd keep it for the winter, you know. <laughs> make popsicles out of it things like that. <laughs> but you know tonight since since it is since it is spring and we are very fortunate to be here in New York City all the way out there in the darkness in that great vast inverted bowl of of America there are countless people who are pacing like tigers oh yeah they stand in front of their TV set. They walk back and forth. Where do all the TV shows come from? New York. Johnny Carson, all these guys are in New York. Maybe once in a while one comes out of California. Can you imagine the Tonight Show coming every night from Zanesville, Ohio? Oh, no. No, no. And neither can they imagine. And every night they walk back and forth in front of that set. There's New York. Ooh. And then that show goes off. California. And all he can do is look up at the skies of Iowa. They live in the land that does not exist. They just don't exist. The turnpikes go over them. The 707 jets go over them. And all the while, they have a vague suspicion that they're living in America. But they're not sure of it. No, they're not. That's why those people are very insecure out there. And they plan, they plot, they, they work with their lives like, like putty, trying to figure out some way to go to one or the other coast. Why do you think everybody in Iowa, when he retires, goes to California? And everybody in Indiana, when the two weeks come up, they stand in front of Rockefeller Center. <laughs> They want to see the real thing. They want to see life, you know. And here we are, friends. We're here at the summit, the pinnacle. There is nothing else. 
Isn't that scary? Isn't that a scary thought? That there's no place to go from this, from this point right here. Well, of course, spring gives us the illusion that it's going to work out. That by August, you're going to be skinny. You're going to be brown. Your eyes are going to be glistening. Your stomach is going to be like a washboard. And the chicks are going to be clinging on both arms. This is by August, you figure. Well, by August, you will begin already to plot for the next year. <laughs> and so it is with life eternally. And I think this is because when we were kids, and by the way, I think since uh, this is a springtime show, we might as well deal with a very touchy subject that's hardly ever discussed. And that subject is the eternal subject of capital punishment in private lives. You're aware, of course, that capital punishment is a big, big discussion today. It's all over the world they're talking about it. But each one of us has known a kind of capital punishment. Do you remember when you were a kid? You know, it's very hard to actually remember when you really were a kid. Because we're so much a creature of myth. You know, we create all this jazz about how great it was and how we played mumbly peg and by the... Oh, it's all yard wide. It's... You know what it is, you know. It's... Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I could use some of the great phrases. If we weren't on the radio, I could tell you what it is, you know. We begin to create this myth about childhood, but we don't remember how it really was. And each one of us, since we come out of American homes, had a kind of capital punishment a symbolic, great, avenging strap. Do you remember the strap? What was the thing that your parent, your mother or your father, threatened you with? Which, what was it? Some people had a strap. We did not have a strap at home. The, the atom bomb in my house was my father. <laughs> that whenever I was pushed to the extremity, you know, I was backed up like this, my mother would say, all right, one more, one more yell out of you like that, and I'm going to tell your father. <laughs> he didn't care, you know. My father was totally uninvolved. Just like atom bombs, they got no conscience, you know, they're totally uninvolved. And I, I remember on those terrible days, you know, when I had, whatever it was I had done, like, like, uh, like the time my mother found all those dirty books in the icebox in the basement. Oh, I shouldn't have brought that up. It's spring. <laughs> you know, that's, that's something that I've often wondered about in connection with women. Because, you know, men, one of the things that men do when they write, you know, they do a lot of writing. Men write most of the novels and all that, and they're always romanticizing women. They always like to think that women somehow are... Well, they're like men, and yet, on the other hand, they can't accept that. Did women, and men, I'm asking you a question. If you remember when you were 10 years old, do you remember those rotten, crummy thoughts you'd get? That you didn't quite understand? Because you didn't know anything about anything, biology or zoology or even birds and bees. You, know? you just knew there was something growing inside and you'd hear a little bubbling once in a while. You're like some rotten swamp. 
you hear boom. And this terrible poisonous gas would come out of your ears. And you're a little kid, you know, you're walking around. Once in a while something would pop out on your skin and hold on to it, you know. And then boys almost invariably begin to look for things in books. Now there's various times, I remember sitting back there and, and in, in class one day and somebody nudges me. <laughs> he nudges me and he hands me a book. It was a history book. And in the history book, they had underlined something in red. One of the, one of the real rotten kids behind. Under, with little exclamation points, oh boy, you know. Hands it to me. I read it. I didn't get it. I didn't know what was rotten about it. I said, gee whiz, that's rotten. <laughs> I pass it on. <laughs> it was something about Elizabeth I. And ever since that time, whenever they talk about Queen Bass or Elizabeth, I, get, I feel funny. There was something about her I didn't understand. Well, do women have this? Do girls hide down in the coal bin? Do girls hide down in the basement under the stairs with crummy little books that they hand to each other out on the, out on the, out on the playground, do they? Look at, look at that funny... <laughs> well, it's spring, you see, and right now it's happening all over. And I remember one of the... Oh, the terrible experience that happened in springtime. I'm about... Oh, about 14. I'm big for my age. I'm with Flick. Flick is six feet two at the age of 14. Schwartz is five feet wide at the age of 14. <laughs> You know, and we had lived next to the blast furnace long enough that there was a sort of a gray pallor over us. And we could pass for any age. You know, kids at a certain point can get by with almost anything. They can say they're 20 or they can say they're 3. It doesn't make any difference. And we, we decided one night, and this is the, I, I, I suppose, the beginning of sin, you might call it, because we all had to start our career in sin. Each last one of us, there had to be that first instant when we stepped into that fantastic void. You ever have that feeling that there is, there is two sides to life? Over here is that great sea of depravity, you know? And over here is that beautiful beach, that, that, that Jones Beach of goodness, you know, you're standing there. <laughs> You know, you walk, oh, look at that guy, he can't even look, he's got his face covered. You walk around on the beach and the sun is shining down on you, you know, you're only about five or six, and you hear the lapping of the waves. And at first, you have been warned that the water is deep, and that there are sharks. Be careful. But you can't stay away. You walk over, and there has to be that instant but the toe goes in. <laughs> and you find you like it. You go back again. <laughs> and you stand around and pretend like your feet are dry. Well, lo these many eons ago, the four of us, me, Schwartz, Flick, and Bruner, are down in Bruner's basement. <laughs> And we're sitting around, you know, you know how kids are, we're playing pinochle. 
14 years old. Yes. <laughs> and it is, a, it is a Saturday, you see. A long Saturday. It's spring. We've been playing ball in the morning. And you know, the whole thing, the cake of yeast that is a kid is beginning to sprout and send out little twigs and stuff. So we're sitting here playing. When all of a sudden, Flick, I remember it was Flick because of later and subsequent events. Flick said, what should we do tonight? <laughs> well, usually it was like, let's go out and play red light or kick the can, you know. Let's go out and yell. Or let's go out and, you know, push girls or holler or do something. See? And Flick says, what should we do tonight? And somehow we knew that what we were going to do that night, we were really going to do. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Bruner says, well, I don't know. And Schwartz sitting there, sneaky little Schwartz, comes up with it. He says, hey. And we all four get together because right upstairs is Mrs. Bruner. A true story reader, by the way. <laughs> Sitting up there next to her icebox, waiting for old Mr. Bruner to come home. He'd been drunk for seven months now. <laughs> they knew he'd come home, though, eventually. We all gathered together, and, and Schwartz says, Let's go to the Star and Garter. Do you know what the Star and Garter is? The Star and Garter was the raunchiest crummiest, hairiest, smelliest burlesque house in all of the Midwest. It's what they called a stand-up burlesque house. They didn't have seats. They couldn't trust the people to sit there or anything. That was, oh, it was open. It was like a bullpen, see? And we had been hearing for years about this. Now, remember that this was a mythical place. It was a place that once in a while we'd drive past in the car and my father would look out and just look. <laughs> and they had these big cutouts in front, you know, gigantic cutouts of women. Fantastic women with feathers all over their heads, you know. And above it it would say, Candy Bar. In person. That kind of thing. Flame guts here tonight. <laughs> Oh, boy, and you know, on these big women, and they were 18 stories high, and the old man would just drive past. <laughs> and it was rumored that on certain decadent New Year's, my father and Uncle Fred and Uncle Carl would go down and take in what is euphemistically known as the Midnight Show. It was, it was kind of the epitome of, of decadence and, and, and terrible sin. And so Flick and Bruner and Schwartz and myself are sitting. This is a fantastic idea. Do you realize how difficult it is to make a decision like that? I mean, it's like four statesmen sitting there and then somebody says, what do you say we have war? <laughs> Out of war, fellas. <laughs> That'll cause a little excitement. Well, of course, at first, there was a little doubt. Like Flick says, how much is it? <laughs> Schwartz says, I don't know. We ought to go down and see. We all had a paper route. You know, we had a couple of dollars in our life savings. Bruner says, well, I, I think we ought to go. Let's go look in front anyway. 
And a half an hour later, by, by the way, my mother still doesn't know about this. <laughs> you know, it's terrible how, how your mother, no matter how old you get, your mother still thinks you're really a kid. And she doesn't know, well, she does really know you know about these things, but she doesn't want to admit it. Oh, yeah, I've known guys with nine kids <laughs> who their mother still thinks he's dating her, you know? <laughs> you don't say anything about this, right? It's all done by osmosis or something, you know? <laughs> Some sort of isometric exercise or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so here we are, you know, we're all sitting there, gee, you know, this fantastic moment of terrible guilt. We are feeling guilty even before we do it. You know, it's really feeling rotten. And 20 minutes later, we are in front of the Star and Garter. Isn't that a great name for us for a show? The Star and Garter. Have big, big electric lights all over the front of it. And it's in one of the raunchiest sections of the loop. Star and Garter. And there's bums in all the doorways, you know, and it's got the big cutouts. And you can hear the music inside. You know that kind of music they put? It's like, wah, da, 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 wah, 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 wah. And then you can hear, boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba <laughs> <laughs> you know, There's something about a tom-tom being beaten <laughs> in the middle distance, I'll tell you. you boom, da, ba and then you hear the sound floating out over State Street of a tenor. So they always had a tenor. And the tenor was singing, A pretty girl is like a melody. Somehow it made it genteel. <laughs> yeah. And all the while, while he's singing, this chick is tearing his stuff off, you know. <laughs> and he's standing over there singing, A pretty girl. <laughs> well, here we are. We're out in front and we're walking back and forth. And finally, after 15 minutes of walking... By the way, they had a continuous show. Didn't make any difference. What time you came in, the same scene was up there on the stage. Went all on and on and on. And so finally Schwartz says, Flick, you're the biggest. Go on over and get four tickets. Flick walks over. Looks back. It was $1.10 each which was the biggest investment in sin. I mean, financially wise, that any of us had ever made up to that point. Oh, a few of us had bought a book here and there for a nickel or a dime. I remember Winnie the Winkle. Winnie Winkle had a little thing going there. Tilly the Toiler had a thing. And... But that was another scene, you know. That wasn't live. You know, that was playground stuff. But this was a buck ten. You realize in the Depression, a buck ten, what that is? I made 73 cents a month from my paper route. I'm shooting the whole summer here, you know? And it better go, man. I mean, this is a big scene, so, so Flick comes back and he's got the tickets. They're just little orange tickets, you know, the kind that you get to just say, tear off half, the kind that says free stub and all, little ticket. It's interesting how innocent sin looks. It often looks, you know, like a bingo game. Well, things like that. See, I got the ticket. Schwartz has got his ticket. We're all trying to walk like men, you know, bums. Walking. 
Sorry, you know that cool walk in there. And I don't know whether you've ever seen the lobby of a genuine Burley house. It's a very peculiar thing. It is not like Rockefeller Center or Radio City. There's a strange atmosphere. There's little guys lurking with dark coats. They watch. They're standing by hallways and selling things out of the corner. We walk through, and all the while in the background you could hear... Like a magnet, it's pulling us in. Ooh, it's pulling us in. You just can't help it, and the blood is flowing, and you can just feel it pounding, and your your brains and your guts are moiling. And we are now in the auditorium. It's like no show I have ever seen. You could just see a dark mass of men standing, all standing. The floor is tilted. It goes down on a sharp angle, and up there in front in this this purple and green light is a girl with gold hair, with sequins in it. A girl. This was like looking at the Taj Mahal, a girl. I mean, all of a sudden, I recognized what they were talking about. Up to this point, you know, it had been Esther Jane Alberry. And Helen Weathers, here is this thing up there with the tassels. And it's all going, you know. And down in the pit, this guy's got the tom-toms going. And this purple light, and this green light, and this yellow light. And the guy is standing over here singing, A pretty girl is like a... Oh, yes, it was a Nelson Eddy of South State Street. And, and Flick and Schwartz, but we all get in the back there. We're standing like this, watching this thing. Watching it go on. And I can't, I can't even go into, into descriptive details of what happened, except that I can say that as it went on, I began to feel more and more and more like a little kid. More and more, I'm getting littler back there, you know. And these people keep coming out, boom, da, da, boom, and all of a sudden the lights went on. Absolutely, the lights went on. And here is this entire room filled with guys wearing fedora hats. They don't even take their coats off when they go in. You know, they all stand like them with the fedora hats like that. Cigars sticking out of their mouth. And me and Flick and Schwartz and Bruno. <laughs> the four of us. And down the center aisle comes this guy. Immediately he comes out and he says, All right, before the next show begins, we have genuine Mexican hand-tooled wallets here. Genuine Mexican hand-tooled leather wallets, and each one contains a beautiful picture imported from Paris, men. Do not tell anyone where you got these pictures, men. You understand, of course, what I'm talking about. We also have here a genuine box of saltwater taffy imported all the way from Atlantic City, New Jersey, containing a wonderful souvenir of your visit here, if you know what I mean, men. We're standing back there. And Schwartz said, gee, I'd like some saltwater taffy. <laughs> And I suddenly realized my wallet was worn. And these guys come wandering back and they're selling this stuff. The show will not go on until we get rid of the last box of saltwater taffy. Saltwater taffy here. The show is ready to go. In one minute, we've got to get rid of this last box. And Schwartz popped. He gets this box. It cost him one buck. Schwartz was wiped out for the whole evening. He was dead. This was Schwartz. His whole life is down the drain now, after all. 
I mean, when you're going to sin, you might as well go to hell all the way. <laughs> Staggering around with saltwater taffy, you know. <laughs> he got the saltwater taffy, and, 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 the, and the four of us stood back there, and the show began again. And on came the girl with the fantastic gold hair. And Flick says, this is where we came in. <laughs> he said, we came in at this point. You know, there was no plot. <laughs> Somehow we figured somebody would come in on a horse and there'd be shooting or something. And we were used to different kinds of shows, not dramas going. We stand there and watch through the entire scene again, all the way, the girl with the purple hair, the one that played the violin. There was one that had Indian clubs, and she did stuff with the Indian... Oh, I can't tell you about that one. And we're watching this. It was a fantastic thing. Schwartz was thinking of trying it in the gym class the week after. And we're watching this, and after, after that, the next show, out came the guy again with the wallets, and Flick, and Schwartz, and Bruner, myself, silently with the other sinners, walked out into the springtime of State Street. Do you know, you know that feeling that all of you have when you leave a movie? That, that feeling of going back into reality? That strange feeling of coming out of, you're, you're, you're in a fantastic movie that's color and it's 18 feet wide and 40 feet high and all that, and suddenly you're out in Times Square, you know, you're walking off. You don't know whether you want to go back in or whether you're glad you're out. Which is it? Schwartz and Flick and Bruno and myself are suddenly back out in the real world and we are feeling as depraved as rotten as debauched and not only that we're scared out of our skull <laughs> that the word is going to get back that this Saturday night we spent it eating saltwater taffy and buying Mexican wallets and we walked down State Street to get back to the Model A, the car we had, and none of us said anything. That's the way sin affects you, you know. Nobody said a word. Just, it's getting cold. Boy, you got the keys, Flick? We get back in the car. The Model A starts, and we start heading back to Indiana. Flick is driving. And all of a sudden, Flick said, Gee, that was great. <laughs> Schwartz says, no, I don't know. He came from a very religious family. No, I don't know. And I just said, well, he, why? And Bruner said nothing. And we rode and rode and rode and rode and suddenly Schwartz said, let's open the taffy. <laughs> we hadn't even opened the taffy yet. She opens the taffy. He dumps it out. There's a couple of little pieces of old petrified taffy, and he throws it out. And in the box of taffy was a postcard, a souvenir of Paris. Well, it was not exactly a picture of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> But it wasn't exactly what it was sold to be either. It was just a very large lady standing next to a maroon drape. 
and she was wearing a yellow bathing suit. Schwartz had this. I had my wallet. My wallet had a picture of Theta Berra or something in it. It was saved from the Boer War. And we got home about 12.30, quarter to one, and went down in Bruner's basement and started to play Pinochle. Four of us. Like this. But I want to tell you this. From that minute on, the Pinochle game had a completely different complexion. Each one of us had seen that kind of underbelly of sin and existence. That bottom thing. That thing that just lays out there and that works its way through your system like some kind of crawling, crawling thing. Is it evil or is it good? Speaking of the evil and the good, what station is this, friends? Are they evil or good? Evil. And where are we? New York. Is it evil or good? Good. He's from Ohio. <laughs> you know, you know, I'll tell you. You know, when, when, when you come into springtime, it's, it's, it's a very nervous time. And I, I, never, I never could understand just how women reacted to it as opposed to how men do. I'll tell you one thing we had in our school in spring. I don't know whether you ever had this. Did you ever have a lice inspection? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all right. A few of you remember. Well, maybe here in the city they just ignore them. <laughs> but I remember, I remember Miss Shields every two weeks taking us down to the nurse's office. And we're all standing in line, you know, like this, and the nurse and the doctor are going through our hair with a comb. They're looking at... <laughs> you know, you, know you, you never expect to have anything happen, but I'll never forget sitting behind this girl named Smithers, Arlita Smithers, and her hair moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to sit back there and watch him, you know. This little, there was this little caravan that would go over the top... Oh, yeah, they were carrying little signs and things, you know. <laughs> she, had a whole, she had a whole life going on there. <laughs> and then there was, there was I, I know I shouldn't bring these things up at the limelight where you all sitting out there with hamburgers and stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, this is all part of springtime. See, they didn't do it in the winter because we grew our crop in the spring. That was when everything, everything blossomed. And, and about this time of the year, the doctor, our school doctor, who must have seen Hellboy the way it really was, the school doctor would ask you questions that had to do with the lice. And then he would ask you about something called worms. <laughs> Did you ever hear of kids getting worms? Well, let me tell you one time, I, I, I had this awful feeling I'm going to just tell you, I'm, I'm going to confess something here. Have you ever had the feeling secretly at any time in your life that you were the victim of some terrible and loathsome disease that you didn't want to say to anybody? Some awful disease, like something you've seen on a poster, you know, be careful of. <laughs> you walk down the street. <laughs> 
this bitch means you. It's not me, no. And then you keep saying, yeah, yeah, I got it. It's awful, yeah. My life is ruined, oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> there was a thing. There were certain things in our, there were certain things in our neighborhood that were considered t loathsome for kids to get. And if kids got them, they were debauched. If you turned up with a little family of lice behind your right ear, forget it. It just showed what a rotten, crummy home you came from. And that was the first thing that my mother used to say. Do you want them to think? What kind of a house do you think? She used to say, look, change your underwear before you go to school. If you get hit by a car, what are they going to think? <laughs> you know, some of my mother's thinking, they say, bang, you're hit by a car. You know? And they can see you down at Bellevue and they got this broken little body, you know. And they're taking her, and they say, look at the family he comes, look at that underwear. <laughs> my mother also had a thing about socks in the same department. I had to change my socks twice a month because of that. <laughs> Well, we, we also had a thing, see, there was another thing that it was reputedly, it was kind of the ultimate in rottenness if you got it. They were, they were, they were kind of mythical. It's like, it's like some kind of mythical oriental disease that you hear all of your life about, like elephantiasis. <laughs> you heard of it, you know, none of you ever get it. You don't come down with a case of elephantiasis. I'm staying home from work today, boss, elephantiasis. <laughs> My foot's 40 feet high, boss. You, know, <laughs> you, know. you never think in terms of this kind of stuff. Well, there was a disease <laughs> that hit kids called worms. And, and, and there were all kinds of myths about it, rumors about it. All kinds of, uh, not, not really rumors, bits of misinformation, but my mother used to say one thing. I'd eat, I, whenever you'd eat candy, like if they had a box of fudge, she'd say, now look, don't eat too much fudge, you'll get worms. Well, I was a secret candy stealer. I used to go down to George's, George's news shop where they sold candy and newspapers. They sold spicy western and spicy detective. Where all that little gemutlik life went on, the kids, you know, you'd, you'd buy the penny candy and all that stuff. And I used to steal Baby Ruth candy bars. I was also very big on a thing called Butterfingers. And they weighed, they weighed at least a quarter of a pound. They came in a shoulder holster, big fat candy bars, and something called Powerhouse. Do you remember that candy bar? Totally indigestible. It was made out of some kind of plastic material all pushed together, you see. And I used, to, I, used to, I used to be a paper kid, see, and I'd go down there, and George was the guy that had the paper route, see? And we would all sit on the floor at George's place and fold our papers, you know, putting them in a bag. You know? And every once in a while, when George wouldn't be looking, you'd go... Into the paper, you know? And, you know, you'd get out with a couple of baby roots and maybe a Butterfinger... And while you're on the route, you know, you're riding the bike and you're stuffing your mouth like that, see? 
my mother figured that the only candy I got was the candy that she doled out. Well, this continued for about a year. I must have put down 18 million, at least 18 million calories a week in stolen candy. And of course, all the while, I've got a little sense of guilt, but not really, because candy was fair game, you know? We figured that George was an oppressive employer. And not only that, he was a Greek. You know, and whatever we could get from George was fair game. You know, I start, we'd say, hey, George, you know, George, all right, you kids, get out, go on. That was our relationship with George. And so it produced a fantastic amount of candy eating among all, the whole crowd. And each one of us had this little sense of guilt. And so would come Saturday, and my mother would have her little pinochle crowd would gather, you know, the ladies would sit there, and they'd have bridge mix. And I would sneak into the kitchen, put my hand into the bowl, and get maybe seven or eight pieces of bridge mix. And my mother would say, let's see how many you've got. She'd say, here, give me that big one and this one. You're going to get worms. She did not realize I was filled with candy from here all the way down to the bottom of my feet. I would walk. You could hear cashew nuts clanking. You could hear all kinds of chocolate squishing when I would walk, you know, pimples coming out. My teeth were so soft they swiveled, you know. I got to turn them around, take them out, and put them in again, you know. I was, in, I was a real candy nut. And she kept saying, worms. You're going to get worms. You know, it's just one of those mother things, like you're going to break your glasses or, you know, you know, that kind of stuff, just a mother thing. And one day, one fantastic day, I am sitting in Miss Robinette's class. It is a hot spring day. We have just had our lice inspection. I have passed with flying colors. I didn't have any hair at all, you know. And I'm feeling clean and nice, and I'm sitting there, you know, like kids do. When all of a sudden, I began to feel a suspicious itching. Worms! I've got worms! Well, <laughs> I know it's in bad taste, friends, but life is in bad taste. Let's admit it now, it's life. And I scratched. And then, it went away for a couple of seconds. That's the, that's the thing about these evil diseases, you see. They keep coming and going. You know, like on Wednesday, you may have a slight attack of a elephantiasis, and then it goes away. Your foot gets small again. You think you're okay. Well, I sat there for about five minutes saying, oh, well, just my knickers are growing again. You know, I had knickers that actually had taken root. And... <laughs> Yeah, they had twigs sticking out. Yeah, a, a boy's, a, a, a boy, a genuine boy's pants are like a compost heap. I have a feeling you could just bury about seven pairs of them out in the backyard and you could grow anything. <laughs> Rich and ripe. I'm sitting there scratching and it goes away. And I felt that fantastic. You know that wonderful relief that all of you felt when you think you've got a deadly disease? And it, 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 isn't not, it isn't true. 
Oh, it's gone. <laughs> it's not only itching, it's beginning to walk around. It's going... I can feel it, you know. And the class dragged on and on, and I'm sweating. Sweating. Just absolutely sweating like mad. Oh, from fear, you know. It's, it's like retribution at last is being visited on me. All those candy bars. The class is over. I go rushing out into the, out into the playground, scratching. And you know that feeling? All of you have had that feeling in health. I'm talking about health here. Of being suddenly separated from the herd. You are the unclean one. Yes, and all the rest of them are having fun in the sun. Carefree, they run and they say, Hey, throw in a ball flick, let's go! And the chicks are walking, and there you are. Full of worms. Maggots crawling in you. Little things are eating and yelling and hollering. They're burping. and You can feel them like this, and I'm standing like that. Well, then they go away again. You feel good again. Now I am home. I'm feeling clean for at least an hour. Just one of those momentary things. And I'm home about a half an hour, sitting in the living room. There they go again. And out in the kitchen, I could hear my mother making supper, walking around with the pots and the pans. My mother who had predicted worms. She had predicted it. That's what makes it so, so terrible. The people all of your lives tell you that awful things are going to happen and you never believe them. How many of you actually believe there's a hell? You've been told this all the time now. One poor soul says, me. Well, that depends on who you're married to. <laughs> you know? And, and, and nobody here does, you see. But we've been told all of our lives, in one way or another, haven't we now, that we are going to reap, we are going to reap the crop of our sins. We've been told this. And yet none of us believe it. None of us believe in a hell, in, in essence. Well, how are you going to feel if five minutes after you have departed this mortal coil, suddenly you wake up and you're in a gigantic chute? Whoa! Down and down you go. Boom, you land there. Oh, my God, no. And you see these guys shoveling. I say, hi, Charlie, we knew you'd be along. Let's go. Oh, no. Staggered back. All of my life, I could... What are you going to do, see? Well, it was like all of my life I've been hearing about worms. Now I got them. They're in me. So I sit during supper and I could feel them coming out of my ears and looking around and waving. <laughs> looking around and yelling and I am in absolute fantastic agony. Oh boy, you know, this is not a made-up story. This is one of the true hell moments of my kid life because worms in my neighborhood were like the equivalent of the worst kind of social pariah you could be to have worms. When you had worms, they dosed you with all kinds of stuff, and they set you in a little special place. They didn't let you eat sandwiches with the rest of the kids, you know, the whole scene. And so here I am. I'm wormy. 
I am Ruby. Me. And Jack Armstrong comes on the radio. Raise the flag for Hudson High, boys. Known throughout the land. And up to this point, Jack Armstrong had been one of me, my friend Jack and Billy and Betty and the whole crowd. And suddenly they were part of that wonderful, that wonderful world of the clean people. You can't imagine Jack Armstrong with lice. He doesn't even have hair, you know. He's just there, and I'm sitting, oh, sweating through this thing. Now it is supper time. Now supper is over. And the itching continues. It is now 8 o'clock. Time to go to bed is coming up, which is at 9 o'clock. And the itching is getting intolerable. I'm standing in the corner like this. You know. <laughs> My mother keeps saying, what's the matter with you? You know, but how are you going to say, Ma, I've been, I've been stealing candy from George. I got the worms. Do you tell her, or what do you do? How does a kid get rid of worms by himself? I thought, immediately I thought to myself, drink a lot of water to drown them. <laughs> so I'm in there, you know, and I'm slugging down the water. Oh. Ooh, I'm drinking water. They still itch. Apparently, they are aquatic. <laughs> That's all they needed was a little water, you know? Oh, gee. It's now about ten minutes to nine. It's time for bed. And you know how mothers get this kind of, this tender involvement with the kid, time for bed. You know, they come in, they say, now, come on, get undressed, let's go. Come on, Randy, let's go, Jeannie, my kid brother, you know, let's go. Come on now. Now, don't, don't, come on now, don't waste time. you got to get up in the morning. I'm not going to have trouble with you in the morning. Now, come on, let's go, let's go. Okay, come on now. Brush your teeth now, you know, that my, my, my mother stuff. And I'm in there, oh, itching. And I take off my shirt. And then I take off my corduroy knickers. And I had this pair, <laughs> I had this pair of special underwear. Now, you won't believe it or not, but in those days they had underwear that had endorsements. You could buy Mike Krivich underwear. <laughs> yes, you could. These were baseball plays. It was like if you could, if you could imagine today buying Mickey Mantle socks. Well, I had a pair of Zeke Benora underwear. <laughs> and, These underwear were only two days old. I had gotten them at Sears Roebuck. They had a big white sock sale down there. Well, I took off my underwear, and all of a sudden, I realized why Zeke Panora was such a rotten fielder. <laughs> it was the underwear that was doing it. Somehow this underwear was the most itchy underwear I ever had. It was itchy underwear. I can't tell you the fantastic feeling of relief that I had. I took them off and I felt, I felt 40 feet high. My kid brother is running around, you know, hitting his head on the radiator and all that stuff. I'm saying, hi, Red, come on over here, let's play, Red. You know, 
throwing my kid brother up. He looks, what's the matter? Is he a nut? What happened? Come on, Randy, let's play. Wow, you kick him, you know. Hey, let's go, Randy. Let's play football. You'll be the football. Come on, let's go. Boom, you know. Right. My mother comes in and says, what's the matter? I said, nothing. Nothing. And do you know to this day, I have not told my mother why my Zeke Benora underwear disappeared. <laughs> and somewhere in some garage in the Middle West, under a five-gallon tin of Sinclair number 30 oil, there is a pair of Zeke Benora underwear. Rolled up because, you see, my mother had given me these underwear as a big special treat. And all I could say later, she said, where's your Zeke Benor underwear? So said, no, I must have lost them. <laughs> Kids are not very good at inventing stuff, you know. <laughs> must have lost them. I swallowed them or something, you know. <laughs> well, that, that, that instant, you know, that moment of, of thinking that I was a social pariah, that I had contracted one of those terrible, unmentionable diseases, taught me something forever and ever. I never forget it. Never. I have remained to this day consistent, and I maintain fidelity to this rule. Be careful of tight underwear. <laughs> Look out for itchy underwear, friends. It's liable to do all kinds of things for you. It can ruin your batting average. Yes, it can make you sweat. And it can make you nervous. And it can make you feel that somehow, someplace, you have mislaid something. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.